After a lifetime of researching the dynamic and enigmatic world of light entertainment, I've decided to ditch my notebook and meet the people who inspire me. What makes them the people they are? How do they feel about the show business landscape in which they find themselves? And in a world where anyone can be a star, is there still a need for performers who have universal appeal? Come with me on a journey of discovery as I get a unique insight into Britain's favourite stars with a little help from my glamorous assistants. Yeah, well, I say glamorous, more like hazardous. And of course, we'll have a bit of fun along the way. Actor and broadcaster Larry Lamb first hit Britain's television screens as Matt Taylor alongside the celebrated femme fatale Kate O'Mara in the BBC's North Sea serial drama Triangle. A string of supporting acting roles continued into the 90s, with cult dramas including Our Friends in the North, Fox and Lovejoy, before a career-defining role came calling in 2007 when Larry was cast as Mick Shipman in the romantic sitcom Gavin and Stacey. This introduced him to a new audience and roles in EastEnders and I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here followed. I caught up with a man himself to talk comedy, soap and recollections of an unparalleled career in entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Larry Lamb. So firstly, like many people who were in London during the 60s, you said that you had some interaction with the craze and people surrounding them. I suppose it's a difficult question to answer, but how would you sum that era up? Now, somewhere along the right line, somebody's fed out some false information. I never, ever lived anywhere near London or the East End Mm. in the 60s. I lived out in Harlow in Essex. And if we came into London, it was like my brother and I would come in little in expeditions. Mm. I had no connection with any of that sort of world whatsoever, ever in my life no. until I became an actor. And then because you talk with a London accent, people start talking about you as if you're some cockney. Mm. And I remember talking to Ray Winstone. Um, we were working together and he said, you're a cockney. He said, you come from Edmonton. Edmonton and Arlo, that's out in the country. You're not a cockney at all. But it's what people people associate that. So I'm sorry to say, as oh. far as the craze, the nearest I ever got the craze was working with Barbara Windsor. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So that's a wrong one. Oh, yeah. Is it annoying that you get stereotyped like that, though? But because well, it seems to be a thing, doesn't it? Anyone who is in TV and acting, it's... The, the, you can moan about it, but the problem is that when you're starting in particular, you've pretty much got to be boxable. Mm. They've got to know, like, what is he? Is he tall? Is he short? Is he from London? Is he from the north? Where is he from? What is he? If you don't get put in a specific item type box, it's not going to be very easy for you to get work because they need to know you're... Agents want to be able to say, look, is this or is that or is that? Mm. So you, there's no point kicking off about it. It's part of getting recognised, yeah. frankly. Yeah. So I was lucky in that I started, you know, because I was a working class bloke and there was a lot of working class stuff being done on the television, uh, I started to get work. Mm. But it was nothing to do with my life at all as a kid. No. So is it fair to say that your first major television role was in the BBC drama Triangle alongside Kate O'Mara? Well, it depends on what who's looking at it. 
in actual fact, in actual fact, my first chronologically, my first major television role was in the TV series Fox, which was produced by uh, Thames Television, which is part of you know the Channel Three commercial television, and Thames Television had a film division called Euston Films. And when I came back to London, because I started, I started off as an actor over in North America, and somebody said, you should go to London because you will work. So I came back here and I was introduced to somebody who introduced me to somebody else. And they were just in the process of putting together a series called uh, Out about a criminal who'd been put inside for years and finally he'd come out and he was going around avenging all the things that had gone on in his life. It was played by Tom Bell, who was a very, very powerful, very popular actor who'd done very well. And they were looking for somebody to play one of his sort of sidekicks. But I was doing a play in the West End and the producers of the play in the West End said, I'm sorry, look, you know, it'd be great for you to do it, we know but there's too much night work involved in it. If it was all in the daytime, you'd be fine. But it's night work and we can't keep letting you off night after night after night. So I couldn't do it. But the people that, the guy that wrote it, Trevor Preston, and the guy that directed it, Jimmy Goddard, we made a connection and they were putting together a new series called Fox about a London family and they wrote a part, the middle of five brothers called Joey, who was a taxi driver and a bit of a lad, a bit of a boy about town. And so that became the first principal part that I played on British television, Fox. Mm. And we did that before I did Triangle. And then the guy that was producing triangle bill sellers had seen me in fox and invited me along to talk to them about playing that character of matt taylor in triangle so triangle came out of fox not the other way around and that, do you think in those early years um it sort of gave you a grounding moving from sort of theater to tv starring alongside those kind of people and it's difficult to say because I'd been very, very lucky very quickly. I was an amateur actor and I went in North America and did an audition to become a professional actor. And I got lucky and I got in. And even luckier still, the people I started to meet, there were a lot of people in London in a big Shakespeare company in Canada that I met. Then that led me getting an audition for a play in New York, which then led to me people saying you should go back to London. And when I came back to London, I already had an agent and I started work immediately. And so as soon as I arrived, I was sent in to see the lady that was uh, casting the, uh, the new Superman films as they were then in 1977. They were casting Superman 1 and Superman 2. Richard Donner was directing them. And so I got a part in both of those. And almost immediately after, I got, an, I got a part in a West End play. So 
I started very, very quickly. It was, you know, it doesn't normally happen like that. I was extremely lucky and it just kept on ticking. One thing led to another. And the people I met led to other jobs. And so out of the TV thing, out of the, out of the, 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 the theatre thing, the play called Philomena, which I did in the West End for best part of a year. Um, then that led on to, that led on to drama, that led on to TV drama. So those, it, you've always got to sort of like cut your teeth and the next stage along. And so I was fortunate in that the next stage along were two things like Fox and Triangle. I didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time just playing tiny, tiny parts mm. on television. It went flip, flip. And so I suddenly got a, I got a head start, yeah. which is extremely lucky because I was so big headed back then. I didn't realize, you know, yeah. I just thought, oh, well, that's naturally that's going to happen, you know. Yeah. But it don't. And then obviously a feature film came along. Uh, Nineteen eighty-eight was it, Buster, and alongside Phil Collins and yeah. Judy Walters. Yeah. How did that come about? Was it just a natural thing from? Yeah. Well, it was funny because in nineteen eighty-five, the BBC did a film about Ronald Biggs, the train robber, being spotted in Rio de Janeiro by a young British journalist, which led to this rather strange escapade where the police, Scotland Yard, sent over two detectives to arrest him in Rio and bring him back, to take him back to prison in England because he'd escaped, right? And the story was that there was no extradition con uh, treaty between between Brazil and England and the police just got on a plane and went there without knowing that and in the end they had to come back empty-handed because he figured a way to stay there so I played Ronald Biggs in 1985 everybody concerned with the film were convinced it was going to be a, a very important important film and as they said they kept saying to me particularly for me but the BBC was scared off by the detective that was involved in it, telling them he was going to sue them if they portrayed him the way they did in this film. So at the last minute, at the turn of the year between 1985 when we made it and 1986, the film, which had been called Slip Up, with a sort of play on the detective's name, Jack Slipper, which he got the needle with, was pulled at the last minute, doctored to suit him. The name was changed to The Great Paper Chase and the BBC put it out one afternoon in the summer. Mm. They buried it. So this thing that was going to be a big thing for the BBC and for everybody else got lost and it particularly got lost for me. So that was 1985. 86, 87, I was doing a lot of work in Italy and Spain. In 87, I got the call about this thing of playing Bruce Reynolds in this film. And I said, well, they're certainly not going to let me play another one of the great train robbers. But in the end, I got the part. So I played that alongside Phil Collins. 
and Julie Waters. Um, so once again, really, really lucky in theory, you know, you play one great train robber and you're not likely to play another one, you know. In fact, when I did Buster, the one thing that came out of it for me was a rather close friendship to the guy I was playing who led the gang, Bruce Reynolds. And Bruce Reynolds used to come and visit me. He would sit and chat. He would come to my place and he lived out in the, he lived out in Croydon and he used to come into London. And if he was in, he'd come and we'd sit in the flat and sit and jaw and talk about, you know, his life and life of criminals, the life of people in prison. He was a very knowledgeable, really interesting man. And I remember, I remember one day he's talking to him about Ronnie Biggs. And I said, are you still in touch with Ronnie over there in Rio? Yeah, of course he does. Of course I am. I said, what, do you talk to him a lot? He said, yeah, let's phone him up. So we phoned up Ronnie Biggs. And they were chatting to each other on the phone. And he he said, I've got Larry Lamb on the phone. I'm in Larry Lamb's place here. wanted to say hello. And... Uh, now he's played me and he's played you. He thought it'd be nice to have a chat. So he gives me the phone. He says, well, <laughs> I hope you played him better than you played me because you're a rubbish playing me. Because <laughs> they all see it. They'd all seen everything. Yeah. So it was, it was, yeah, it was rather, it was rather interesting to play those two different characters in two different versions of that huge thing. And then of course, years later, I finished up playing the, the guy that did the, 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 the jewellery robbery at Hatton Garden. It's sort of like, you know, this is it. You're kind of working class crook. Yeah. Does that happen often when we're talking about the BBC just sort of at the 11th hour sort of pulling it and then putting it in a graveyard slot and then... I, I wouldn't say it happens a lot, but the problem is they've got, they've got a huge legal department. Yeah. And the, 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 you know, the legal department's jobs depend on them not losing any any cases in court and yeah. so they err on the side of caution all the time mm. so you know not only did they change it to suit the, de the detective they then dumped the film so you know that's the way it goes yeah because it wasn't just me that was upset about it the director who was a big old bbc director who'd been there for years yeah. was absolutely livid about it i mean but there's nothing you could do it's like it's a great big government department mm. that's it yeah, it happens. So uh, moving, moving on. You also guest starred in BBC cult drama Our Friends in the North in nineteen ninety six. Yeah, why, why do you think that series remains such a cult classic? I think because it. I've, that's a very good question. Why does it remain a cult classic? I think it remains a cult classic amongst thinking people. I think if you ask ordinary people that sit in front of the television watching crap, they wouldn't even know what you're talking about. Mm. It was well-written, well-constructed. It told a really interesting story about the inside of local government politics. Um, it had a lot of very good actors in it, and it was really well-written. Well you know, when you think you had people like Daniel, what's it, Daniel, um, Daniel uh, Superman. Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig and Eccleston, you know. Chris Eccleston, and that's with that. They're just the ones I can think of right at the top of my head. But it was it was strange because the guy that directed, well, funny enough, there's a coincidence. The guy that directed it was the son of the guy 
who directed the thing that got the boot. Oh. And uh, and he, it was a big, big project for him, you know. And I was surprised to get it because they were all North, North well, they weren't all North Country characters, but the character I was playing with a Northeasterner. So, you know, I can throw together a reasonably, you know, convincing Northeast accent as long as it's not people specifically from the Northeast are judging it because they will say, oh, I, that's not good enough. You know, you, you sound like you're from there, but you're not from there. You're from over there. Mine's a sort of composite Northeast accent, which once you get going, it works all right. But I found myself in a caravan having a conversation with an actress who was from County Durham and she was playing a Southerner. And I'm from the South and I was playing a Northeasterner. So we were kind of, you know, we were both doing the same thing. We were both playing opposite of what we actually were. But it was, yeah, I think it was the right, the right, it's always the writing. It's the writing. Mm. The writing's what makes it stand out. And then you get, you get a good director and, and you get yourself principally good actors. That's it. So speaking of classics and great writing, a little bit more up to date. Two thousand and seven, you were cast as Mick Shipman in the romantic sitcom Gavin and Stacey. Yeah. What was your first impressions of the show? Well, my first impressions clearly weren't good enough because I went into in I do an audition for them, and when I came out, they wanted me to. They filmed me doing a couple of scenes with Ruth Jones reading Alison Steadman's part. So it was to see how he worked as Mick opposite Pam, mm -hmm. but it wasn't Pam doing it. And so they filmed it. And when I came away, my agent phoned me. She said, how did it go? And I said, well, I'll tell you something. I think they all liked what I did, but I don't think the director did. She phoned me about an hour later. She said, well, you were right. The director wasn't convinced, but the rest of them were. So they want you to go and do it again, but this time they're going to get Alison Stedman. So you'll read the part of Mick with Alison Stedman being Pam. So I did it, and that was it. I got the part. Mm. Simple as that. So right from the beginning, you knew it was, you know, it, you knew it was special. Mm. Right from the first time we sat, we sat around. You see, to me, it was interesting because it wasn't altogether obvious comedy. It was comedy that came out of characters. Yeah. It was the interrelationship of characters, which is always what the best comedy is. It's, yeah. com it's character driven. You begin to know these characters and it's what happens when that character responds to that character. It's how they are all interconnected. And so when it really first hit me, as opposed to just reading it to prepare to do an audition, when it first hit me, was hearing it read by all the actors around a table on the very first time we all got together. Once I heard that, then I realised what was happening. Yeah, that's that's one of our go-to. You know, when something's on and you think, we watch yeah. that. Yeah. We said before, well, you have to look a long way to find a better, better character acting than in that sitcom. Yeah, yeah. And you probably get it a lot that people know you as... Mick, Mick. Oh, yeah. And much more exactly than Archie Mitchell. That's what I was say, much, much more than Archie Mitchell. Yeah. And he was another high profile. It, 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 I mean, that, those two things together completely changed my life. I remember when I first got, when I first got uh, 
EastEnders. My then partner, the mother of my two daughters, had been involved with one of the one of the real stars in the early days of EastEnders. She was his girlfriend. And when I got EastEnders, she said, well, just watch out because this is going to change your life completely. And that, coupled with Gavin and Stacey, it just went literally flipped. So from being an actor who's had a good career, made a living, done a lot of television, a lot of theatre, a lot of everything for 30 years, right? All of a sudden you become, you become these two characters. And I think I was lucky in that it wasn't just the one because you couldn't be nailed down. Mm. But what's interesting is the audience for Gavin and Stacey, which continue, I was just talking to two people yesterday I was working with, I've only just watched Gavin and Stacey. Mm. Yeah. And that audience still grows and grows and grows to this day. Whereas in EastEnders, you become like a part of a collage. I've had people say to me, what were you, you were Dirty Den, weren't you? I mean, you, you were a baddie. They know you were a baddie, but they yeah. can't tell you when and they can't tell you which one. They just know you're one of the baddies. Whereas Gavin and Stacey, that's like, that program is like really iconic. You know, that's it. Yeah. It's fixed in time, particularly for people of your age group. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. In terms of sitcoms, it really came at the right time. It was in yeah. a bit of a lull. And, it, and like you say, it was iconic for... Our generation, we all, yeah. we always we both love sitcoms, and we always talk about where we rank sitcoms yeah. and stuff. And I think within our age group, yeah, between Gavin and Stacey and the in betweeners, yeah. probably are the two which completely, yeah, encompass the whole that whole it, era. You know, I mean, I, I I I know as soon as I meet Gavin and Stacey fans, I know yeah. they're not going to be EastEnders fans. You know, you know they yeah. are. A, you know, they're thinking people of a certain age. Yeah. That's it. Because it was so clever. It was so well constructed. It was so well thought out and so well cast. Yeah. You know, that cast was just extraordinary the way they got, they got it right completely. There was nobody there that thought anybody wasn't right for that part. Mm. And it took them a long time. It wasn't just a couple of days. It, they took weeks and weeks and weeks they were trying to put that thing together. And then what happened, they put us all in a hotel in Cardiff. And that sort of became our home away from home every week from Monday morning to last in Friday night. Uh, the first one was like six weeks. We did the six episodes. And in this great big lobby, they had like a fireplace and so every night we all used to gather around this fireplace and eat, you know, have like whatever they were serving in the hotel, little bits of food or whatever. And that became known as Pamela's Parlour. And that's really where Gavin and Stacey grew together. Because what happens a lot with TV shows, you get close, but at the end of the day, everybody goes home. We didn't go home. We sat like a family around and it, the whole thing carried on. So these characters gradually, gradually, gradually formulated this union, as it were, around that fireplace in Pamela's parlour. Mm. When it ended, when Gavin and Stacey ended, how did you feel? Were you sort of 
happy when it finished? Did you think that that was it, job done, or were you sort of nervous moving forward, apprehensive? No, I mean I don't think about being nailed down it, it, to a part. Or... No, no, you can't. I mean, like if you've been doing it for thirty-five, forty years, there's no way you're going to be worried about being nailed down to a part. You know what I mean? That's yeah. different. If you're if you go into EastEnders and you've never done anything else, watch it because that's what you are. You know, yeah. I'd avoided doing anything like that for thirty odd years. Yeah. So I, that wasn't a worry about me. I was very interested to see what happened to it. But, you know, by the time it finished, I, my life was beginning to change because I realised, blimey, this is, this is, this is going to be something. Funnily enough, it was just outside the National Theatre. I was working in the National Theatre. Just when it was starting, the BBC were very clever with it because they knew they had to capture a young audience. So they started to, they started to leak it themselves online before it came out on BBC Three. Mm. So it was a known entity before it hit the television station, right? And I was just walking into the National Theatre and some bloke said to me, Ed, you're, 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 you're in that that thing, that Stacey thing. Mm. That's you, isn't it? I said, yeah. He said, God, blimey. He said, that's brilliant. It's brilliant. I thought, mm-hmm. Then I started to get little phone calls from family and friends who'd seen it. It's like, woo-woo. Yeah. And then you think, okay, okay then you do realise that it's it's turned out as good as people thought it was going to be. And then, of course, you've got the next one to do, by which time I'd been involved with with, with EastEnders. Mm. So then you've got EastEnders and you're doing that and that and that and that. And by the time, by the time Gavin and Stacey finished, which would have been exactly the same time as I was finishing in EastEnders, then my life had already begun to change. So I was doing all sorts of different things. Yeah. And, you know, in the usual way with the BBC, you're in their award-winning national favourite comedy and their award-winning national favourite soap opera and you don't get another job for five years. Mm. And that's what happened. Never got a sniff from the BBC for five years. And then I got to take over from Dennis Waterman in what was to be the 12th series of New Tricks. And three weeks into the filming of it, the BBC decided to close the show down. So we finished the 12th series and that was the end of that. Mm. So that was that was one job after five years. Yeah. I carried on doing all the stuff that I was doing, all the different presenting things, doing documentaries, doing travel stuff, doing commercial. I'm having a really good time doing stuff that I like, history a lot, working for yeah. the one show. Yeah. Having an altogether different life, but not acting at all. And then right out of the blue came this thing I've just finished, which is a, a TV series for the BBC that will go out in the afternoon in the new year called Pitching In. I think that's what they're going to call it anyway. But so like, it took another five years to get another job for the BBC. Yeah. So just... Uh sort of mentioning James Corden again, do you, would, did you think he was always destined to be the international star that he is? No. No? No, he's clever. He's very clever. Very clever. Very, you know, that was brilliant, that. But now, you know, like... Just a normal guy. Yeah, you yeah. know. I mean, he's been around a long time. That's what people seem to overlook. James Corden was a child actor, you know. He's been around for years. 
So, you know, he knew where he was going. But, you know, br- brilliant, brilliant piece of work to, for him and her to have written that. Mm. Yeah. Looking back on your career, what would you say your proudest achievement is? Surviving. Yeah. Making a living for 40-odd years. I mean, there's so many kids that get into this business. They, they dream about it. They go and fight and audition and struggle to get into a drama school. They spend three years at a drama school getting themselves in debt. They can't even get an agent. They come out there on the street. They cannot even find somebody to represent them. And if you ain't got an agent, you might as well just wrap up and go. So I survived. Made a living. I've had an amazing time. Been all over the world. Met all sorts of extraordinary people. Wrote a book about my life. And I'm still, you know, I'm 71 and I'm still still getting work. Mm. That's it. That's a major achievement. Definitely. Coming from nothing, from nowhere, with no thoughts ever of being any. I wouldn't even know what an actor was when I was a kid. Mm. So moving forward then, what's next for Larry Lamb? I'm just, as I say, I've just, this, this thing I've just finished, that comes out in February. Um, and... I'm doing a little. I'm doing a little sort of like a, kind of a an evening with show with my son, where I'm just talking, you know, to little audiences to try it out about my life. Just talk about my life. I'm not. I'm not. You know. I'm not. I'm not in a panic. No. I'm not in a panic at all. You know. I've so, done enough work the last year or so. I'm all right for a while. There, there was something comes along. It yeah. always does. In the end, it, for me. Sooner or later, something comes along. I'll be sitting around moaning, I haven't got anything to do, and I'll say anything, and now I've got to work. Mm. And that's it. Okay. Excellent. Thanks very much. That's, hey, that's all you're welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. Lovely. A big thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you like this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy? Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates of forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time for another Beyond the Title interview.